This is PFA Conversations presented by the Professional Footballers Association. I'm your host, Marcus Fjortoft, and welcome to this week's episode where I talk to Hope Powell, arguably one of women's football's most successful and influential coaches. We explore her favourite football memories and how she defines success. We delve into how her experiences as a player and growing up have influenced her coaching style and approach, and the key lessons she has learned as a leader. We explore the challenges faced transitioning from playing to coaching, the importance of evolving and adapting, and the steps that can be taken to create a fresh start for women's football. Here, Powell reflects on her career and also shares her non-negotiables, best advice, and what she is most proud of. This is PFA Conversations with Hope Powell. I guess I want to start super innocent, really. I just want to know what your favorite football memory is. Oh my God. <laughs> favorite football memory. Uh, ooh, that's a, that's a really hard opening question, actually. Um, oh God, you got me there. Uh, do you know what? I remember the um, 78 World Cup. It's either 76 or 78. I never remember the year. Um, and watching that World Cup and especially the Peru team, and the, the, the standout player, I can't remember his name. I, don't, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, should I say. Um, but that and the, the whole atmosphere around it on the telly and the World Cup and kids going out and playing in the street. And that's really my, when I really fell in love with football, I think. I played it from probably the age of seven, but that... I have a really fond memory of that. You mentioned there the, the childhood, the, the following of the game as, mm. as a child. Mm. What influences, what, what's the context of, of, of that time in your life that I need to understand in order to understand perhaps the leader, the player, the coach that you became? Uh, I, I don't honestly know. I think I just enjoyed... Um, I was very good, fortunately, at all sports, and I could play all sports, but for some reason I had this real draw to football and watching it on the telly and trying to emulate it in the streets with the boys and, um, you know, and I only, very young age, only played with boys. Um, and, And the fact that I was quite good and quite driven, I don't know whether I was a bit bossy, um... But I, I, there's there's no real kind of thing that, you know, why a leader? I, I think, you, you know, I was never, as, as, as a child, I never ever, um, I was never a follower. You know, when you, you, you have your little groups as kids and, you know, back in the day we used to play things like Knock Down Ginger, I don't know if you know, and those sort of being naughty little kids, I'd never do that. I would never follow anybody. Um, and maybe that's the influence of, of my mum, you know, be a bit independent and not wanting to get in trouble. And, you know, over time, the estate I grew up on, um, you know, when I was a kid, quite often my friend's parents would, would say, you know, groups of kids, when she goes in, you all, you know, I want you to come home. So, I don't know, I just was a natural, quite happy to do things without, on my own without following others. As that evolved then and you became, you know, a leading player, but then going into the mm-hmm. England national team setup and, and, and what have you, 
Have you been able to reflect back on maybe certain principles that you would abide to when you led in terms of what you demand from players, those around you? Are there certain, I guess, a value system in place there that maybe started from when you were young? If it did, I don't know. Um, and it probably did. I think how you grow up as a child has a massive influence as who you become as an adult. Um, and I, I think, you know, I was brought up by a, a single parent mother who, who had to do everything, who gave direction, who, who demanded certain things, standards, you know, the way you look, the, you know, cleaning your room and, you know, there were standards that I had to live by, um, you know, and I guess I just followed that through. There are standards I probably set, you know, in terms of delivering the standards that I would want from from people I worked with. So I guess that standards is something that's always been around, you know, clean your room or look decent when you go out or be on time or you know those are probably the standards that my mum set and probably this is the first time I thought about that um yeah but I would say I got that from my mum and she's still very much like you know you know on time if you say you're going to be here at this time it's this time and I'm very like that you know if we say we're going to start a meeting at 10 it's at 10 it's not one minute past if we're going to be on the pitch for 11, it's not five minutes past, you know, there's no excuse for you to be late unless there is an excuse. Is that how you communicated with, with players then in terms of letting them know what you expected of oh, them? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And over the course of, of you becoming uh, and, and developing into a, a better manager and what have you, how did that evolve? over the course of your career, say from when you started till till now? Yeah, I think I think you're you're um, you're always learning. You, you know, every day is an opportunity to learn. Um, and you know, you evolve as a person, you mature, you know, players evolve as players. Um, and so continuously I found myself just you know, you want to kind of be better every day, you know, and the game's changed and moved on. And I think as a, as a leader, you have to move with it. Um, and I tried not to, you use, you use your experience, but you've also got to evolve that experience to a modern day era. And so every, I'm not sure I'm answering the question, but um, as a person, an individual, I, I found that my leadership style had to change, had to evolve. Um, to meet, you know, the new gener generation Z, mm -hmm. you know, it's very different to generation, whatever it was when I was a player. And so as a leader, you have to evolve with that. Otherwise it won't work. In terms of then the transition when you, when you are a player, mm -hmm. and I've asked several other this, of, of those now entering into the managerial mm -hmm. phase, both on the men's and the women's side, but you go from experiencing so much from having played, being in these high intensity situations, to now having to convey a message in order to teach, mm. which is quite different, I can imagine. Yeah. How, how did you find that initially uh, in terms of conveying that message from a different standpoint? 
Um, yeah, that's, that's quite challenging. I think my experience was today I was playing, tomorrow I was the manager. Um, and I, I, I kind of looked at it and uh, very quickly had to reflect on when I was a player and what I liked and what I didn't like. And I took that with me. And in terms of conveying the message, I always felt it was quite important to um, engage with the players and solicit their views, you know, to bring them with you, which is, is, is all part of leadership, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But being open, being transparent um, was, was one thing I tried to do, but making it very, very clear that I would be the one that would have to make the decision, but I would solicit views of everybody. And then we'd come to, you know, this is what I think is best. And I think over time, you just learn to refine that a bit better. In the process of refining, mm -hmm. learning, development, of the coaches that you come across, the people in various managerial roles, what do you think separates the best from the rest? Is there a common denominator? The best will communicate effectively and, and um, embrace ideas and views and not be dismissive. You know, the, the best communicators, I think, quite often make the best leaders. You know, obviously that, that, that knowledge of the game and all of those things, but to be able to, the art of communication is, is quite, quite key. I did a previous episode and I sat down with Cesc Fabregas okay. and he was constantly emphasizing how the player was the most important in the sense that they're the ones making the decisions on the field. Is, is that related to that in the sense that you can convey a message to a certain extent and then giving them the, the power, the autonomy to yeah. make those decisions within that framework? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, they've got to, at the end of the day, it's that there's, there's two sides to it, isn't there? There's there's the competitive side, the on-the-pitch side, where the players have the autonomy and need the autonomy to make those decisions and, and react in certain situations. And there's the, the, the bit where it isn't competitive, where you know, you're learning and, and developing. Um, and it, it, it's the skill of the leader, the coach, to be able to, to articulate what you want, what you require in order to get the best out of the player so that they can go from practice to the pitch when it matters. Mm -hmm. So how you communicate that is really important between the coach, the leader and the players and then the players having the understanding, the power, if you like, the, the will to do the best they can and deliver. So in that moment, the players are key. They are the most important thing, but it's all got to be communicated. On that topic then, in terms of how the communication from your standpoint, does that adhere to a certain football philosophy you have? And the reason I ask is a lot of coaches, we think, oh, Guardiola, he's to do with that kind of uh, playing style or a Mourinho, he's that certain style. But is philosophy sometimes a hindrance or too restrictive in it depends what your philosophy is, doesn't mm. it? Um, and, and again, philosophy evolves, doesn't it? You, you know, and we've seen it, haven't we, over, over the years where where coaches might go, well, we're going to play a 4-4-2, and then it's a 3-5-2, and then it's a 
a false this new false nine or it's whatever it is i think i think the best coaches i guess evolve and develop develop their philosophy i i i don't believe any that there's a certain i guess a certain standard you have my philosophy is i want you know i want to do this we we want i don't know want to be able to play through the thirds if we can when whatever it is but then you've got to adapt it and got to evolve it to the current situation to the modern game um, um, you, you know, it evolves, a philosophy evolves. I can't even remember what the question is, to be honest. <laughs> well, it was a very long-winded question yeah. as well. This is open in the sense that how would you define success? Is it three points? Is it a good game? Success comes in many guises. I think um, what I really enjoyed was um, players becoming better players. Um, you You... So that was them as players. Players then being able to um, take from the, the practice to the pitch and delivering. So, you know, the, a certain way we wanted to play, how we wanted to set up. Did they do that? You might not have won the game, but did they attempt to do it? That would be success. And then, you know, the clear one is, is the, the, the three points would be success. So I would always... You know, success, you could lose the game, but it could still be very successful for me, depending on what the plan was going into that game. They say that some of the best coaches are the ones that can, matter of fact, develop players. Mm. It's funny because when we talk about the, the development path of the player, when they are, quote unquote, adults, mm. it means that they're done developing, whether it's be physical or mm. technical, whatever. How, how does a player improve at at that age, how can a coach facilitate for that? Is it the decision making? Is it is it technical? I, th I think if they are the best of, of, of the best, if you're talking about the the, the best players and the, the you know that have reached the pinnacle of their career, I don't think it's technical. I think it's more about um, so they can develop to become better leaders. They can on the pitch, um, you know, having the ability to strategize in game and make those decisions to help their teammates. They become leaders. It's not necessarily the technical element. It's the more, more the leadership, the strategical element where, where those senior players perhaps can improve. What are you the most proud of, you'd say? Um, to be honest, there's no one thing. I think I, I'm really proud of the fact that um, I've been involved certainly in the women's game from certainly from an England point of view when we had uh, very little, um, few resources, little um, interest in the game. Um, was able to influence that, build a pathway, um, you know, introduce central contracts, get first World Cup for 12 years, play it in the Olympics, you know, get to a final in 2009 for the first time in however many years. So there's loads of little things that I've really enjoyed and I'm, I'm really proud to have been part of something that has become what it is today in women's football. And by the way, still feel very privileged and lucky that I'm still involved in it in some way. You put it humbly in the sense that you've played a massive part mm. in 
and hugely admired and respected as that and leave behind a great legacy in terms of raising the profile of the women's game. Just one question on that topic. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I liked, and I admittedly become a more recent fan of the women's game as the profile has, has heightened and it's been more accessible on TV, what have you, but one of the things I've liked the most is the type of audience attracts. Mm-hmm. What can the women's game learn from the men's game in terms of the mistakes we made? Because is it less more a matter of replicating, but instead evolving it or starting anew? in terms of how we can move it forward. It's great. The, the women's game is, is, is very humble. It's, um, the, the fan base is a particular being targeted. Um, it, it is family and friends orientated. Um, and, and that is absolutely fantastic. I, I think one of the, the, the big factors in women's football is why people are prepared to come and watch it want to keep coming to watch it, a, a, a few reasons, the atmosphere, it's a safe environment. I think that, you, you know, sometimes a threat and that tribalism in the men's game is is quite off-putting for a lot of fans. I'm not sure I'm even answering your question. No, you um, um, that element of tribalism isn't, isn't in the women's game. The players are more accessible in the women's game and we have to keep that where the players after the games are prepared to sign autographs and be close to the fan base. That keeps players, um, the fan base coming back. And, and it's affordable. That is a big, big difference between the men's game and the women's game. You know, you can go and watch women's football at a reasonable cost for your whole family. And, and not have to get out a second mortgage. And those fans keep coming back because the product on the pitch is, is decent and the standards have really been raised. So I think you put all those things in the mix, that's why the fan base has increased and you know getting better. Um, and that's something perhaps that the, the men's game is kind of, it's quite expensive sometimes, mm-hmm. a bit of tribalism, feels a bit, Daunting, the whole experience is is very different to the women's game. And lastly, what is the best advice you ever received? Best advice I ever received was um, don't be afraid to make a decision. At the time you make a decision, it's the right decision. But if you make it and then it doesn't feel right, don't be afraid to change it. Thank you. <laughs>